Hello and welcome to this week's TES News Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Louise Clues. I'm News Editor at TES and today I'm joined by Deputy News Editor John Roberts and also joining us today is Callum Mason, who is Correspondent at TES. This week, with it being the final week of the TES podcast before Christmas, we thought we'd take a slightly different approach and look back on 2022 and sum up some of the big stories that we've covered and, and the themes that have dominated this year. To kick off, however much we've we've tried to get back to normal, COVID has still been the thing and the ongoing legacy of COVID and the pandemic and schools closing during the pandemic has continued to dominate. Here to, to talk a bit about that and the, the ongoing impact and policies that the government has tried to create and the work that schools have tried to do to mitigate that impact is, um, is Callum Mason. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a very different picture, isn't it? If you look across the year, if you look at the start of the year in January and the very end of last year, um, COVID was was still rife in schools. We were worried about about sort of the immediate effects of of COVID in terms of it closing schools potentially or or pupils not being able to make it in. Even though we're not seeing on that scale COVID actually stopping people going into school in that immediate sense now, it's definitely not gone away, and that long term impact is is going to going to sort of have have an impact for several years to come I think um and the government has been looking at and trying to implement strategies to see how ch- children can catch up and um, we had a report that came out just this week actually which looked at the disadvantage gap and how it is the biggest basically in in 10 years so there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot of catch up to happen um and the flagship element of that catch up from the government is the national tutoring program um, so this is the program that offers tutoring to to pupils as a way of catching up. The initial plan was to to catch up on that lost learning. Um, and we've had it's been a, it's been an interesting year. We started off the year um, last academic year with the with the NTP being run by by Randstad, which is a, a Dutch HR firm. And it felt like at the start of the year there were stories sort of every week, weren't there, um, about how it was how it was going wrong, how there were pupils were being being taught ghost pupils empty classrooms were being taught um by tutors because of sort of concerns about how they how the ntp hit its targets um and there was a real change in about i think about march when the government switched to doing school-led tutoring as the main sort of pillar of the programs so they switched to giving money to schools and since then we've seen a change and we've seen on paper, the government sort of hit some of its targets. Um, so that they said they wanted to hit two million tutoring sessions uh, last year, and stats this year show that technically they did do it. But this school-led arm, which is is run by by schools, organised by schools, has been sort of the main the main pillar of that. Um, and I think without that, the actual the actual levers of the the program that were really run last year by Randstad the the tuition partners and the academic mentors these were where external people came in and it was it was sorted by Randstad and the DfE they were not as successful um, and I think if we still had them now might be looking at sort of a different picture in terms of those core starts as we call them. Mm. And the, the 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 sort of bottom line of this is is that the original aims of the program haven't been met, have they? Because I, I think that they've moved the goal goalposts slightly, and we don't know how many pupils have actually been reached by the by the NTP. And the schools have obviously, you know, stepped in where Randstad 
and the the other strands of the program were failing to deliver um and have done a huge amount of work but um but 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 there's been an awful lot of time lost hasn't there um i think we reported at the end um last year sometime towards the end of last year that the matchup was was sort of 92 percent adrift of its its target i think it was originally um the the, the tuition partners part of the ntp was uh, aimed to to hit 776,000 pupils in the last academic year and i think that the figures released yesterday showed what we with long being reporting is going to happen but confirmed they only hit a quarter of that that target but luckily schools have made up a lot of that ground but still the government's talking about numbers of starts that isn't numbers of pupils that that you know because some pupils have done multiple courses so it, it's impossible really to to see how effective the program is still is the bottom line isn't it yeah i think that's right so i think that yeah, they they did in a way change the goalposts. I mean, the, the the primary aim of the program at the start was this tuition partners pillar, which is where schools hire or bring in external sort of tutors to run sessions. That was that was really how it was initially set up. That was the that was a key arm of it. And this academic mentors pillar. Um, and between those, as you say, the initial target for Randstad last year was I think to hit about three quarters of a million pupils using these pillars. Um and it was quite clear, I think, at Christmas last year that they they weren't going to do that. As you said, we did a story about how they were they were massively adrift of the target. And then they started to shift it towards, well, schools are saying that they they would like to do more school-led tutoring, which is where the school sorts the, the tutors. They might mm. be their own staff. They might hire tutors from outside themselves. Um, and I guess they could say they were listening to they were listening to schools that wanted that mm. more. But then I guess schools would say, why did you not do that at the start? Um, and mm. and the data that came out yesterday, yeah, showed that the vast majority of the sessions last year were were run through this through this school led tutoring arm. Mm. And as you say, the stats that they use are about course starts. Um, so that's that's how many how many times a, a pupil has started a course. But that might include some people starting two courses or three courses. We don't actually know how many pupils have 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 actually benefited. I guess. Um, mm. across the, the three strands and I think some of the problems with the NTP have continued this year because schools have said that they they don't have enough cash they only get they only get part of the the tuition that they they run subsidized and some schools have said with with some of the financial problems that they are having that they aren't able to afford to make up the the rest of it and stats that came out came out yesterday show that I think basically only just over two-fifths of schools in the first month and a bit of the of this academic year actually use the ntp now maybe that'll go up next term maybe maybe they're planning to do it do it more next term but i think if those stats didn't go up significantly in the coming months uh there'd be a there'd be a bit of concern and um, that even though last year they hit the targets and i think this is a quote from from nick brook who's the outgoing um deputy general sec of the naht school leaders union and he was saying they might hit the target but sort of missed the point a little bit Great, that's that's a really good roundup. Thanks, thanks, Callum. And obviously, we'll be uh, we'll be staying on developments and covering uh, how that how that runs this year. Um, so keep uh, keep focused on on Callum's coverage on that.
Um, so the next big development in 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 policy terms for for schools this year we is is um in march we we finally had the launch of um the schools white paper and the, and the schools bill and here to to talk us through the kind of rise and fall of of that particular policy is um is john roberts who's who's um covered a lot of it so so john what happened in march and and kind of can you talk us through what what the, the key policies that were introduced then um and what what and how the sector reacted yeah, absolutely. So um, the school's white paper, as you say, was published in March. It had been trailed a little bit. And um, and I think the two key things that were contained in there was the government setting out um, ambition for a, an entirely multi-academy trust-led system by 2030, um, and also a set of really ambitious academic targets um, around improving GCSEs by 2030 and getting 90% of primary school pupils to the expected standard in SATs again by 2030. Now, the big policy area, I think, was MATS. Academy trusts and the growth of multi-academy trusts have kind of dominated school policy really over the past decade. It's It's been the kind of the emerging pattern and change, but this was the government sort of saying, we've got a split system at the moment and we're going to set the goal that we want all schools to be in a strong multi-academy trust. And then from that, flowed the schools bill, which basically was going to create the legislation that would support that. And there was a lot, the schools bill had lots of other things in it as well. And we'll maybe touch on those in a little DL if we if we can. But the main thing was that they they not only envisaged an entire system where all state schools were in multi-academy trusts, but they then acknowledged, well, we'll need a new system of accountability and oversight and regulation. So we need to create a new set of sort of powers for the Department for Education to, to regulate a MATLAB system. So in a way, I think, people in multi-academy trusts supported the start of this because this was about giving them primacy, that they were the they were the important factor and, and sort of driver for school improvement and decision-making in the system. But then what happened really quite quickly was when the schools bill was published a couple of months later, the way it was drafted caused big controversy because they it was really, really open-ended and basically gave the Department for Education a kind of a... a it basically proposed creating standards that the DfE could intervene and hold... Academy trusts to account to on, on almost every aspect of the school day. And very quickly, there was kind of concern in the sector, but also concern in the House of Lords as it was going through its initial stages, that this would amount to a huge kind of, I think it was kind of described like as a, a Whitehall power grab of schools. Um, and incredibly, really, this led to the bill being gutted of its kind of core purpose really early on. So they basically withdrew loads of the clauses that related to how they were going to run multi-academy trusts. Uh, sorry, hold hold multi-academy trust to account and then set up a, a very much kind of a trust-based expert panel to kind of redraw their own bill for them. Um, if that wasn't calamitous enough, you then, you get to July and then we, of course, sort of see the, the Department of Education become engulfed in the chaos that engulfed the entire of Westminster and the country with Boris Johnson's government collapsing a seemingly interminable leadership contest um, that lasted about as long as the the, the winners' government premiership when Liz Truss's government came and went, and now we have uh, Rishi Sunak as the prime minister. But for policy terms in education and schools that we care about, that meant five education secretaries this year, um, and real massive uncertainty about where the schools bill sat in the government's kind of priorities and whether it would um, whether it would even survive. I think we were half expecting it to go, and indeed there was kind of talk of an announcement being imminent just before the collapse of Liz Truss's government. And then as Tess broke the news just before it was announced um, at the select committee, 
that the school's bill was no longer being taken forward. Gillian Keegan told MPs that. So in, in, a, in a relatively short space of time, you've had a government set out a bold policy agenda for, for getting somewhere in 2030, five education secretaries kind of coming and going, and the government having to abandon the legis plan for legislation to support that. And I think where that leaves us now is with a lot of schools asking, well, how much of the things that you told us were priorities or plans, you know, in March, April, May, June, July, how much of that is still in place? So that's where that's where mm. we are with it. Um, mm. And it's quite depressing in a way. You think about all the kind of energy as journalists that we pay to these stories, mm. that we might get to 2023 and all of that will have been self-contained in a year of chaos and not really lead to anything. Well, I mean, that's probably overstating it because the government's still committed to multi-academy trusts. But how much of the kind of pledges and specific proposals and timetables, how much of that remains in place remains to be seen. Mm. I think what a lot of people say, I think how, what you just touched upon there, John, is that they are committed to multi-academy trusts, but that's sort of been the case before, hasn't it? Previous education secretaries have said we're going to have this movement. And that 2030 target was sort of the, that was almost the main new thing, right? In this white paper that, that they were finally putting this time frame on it. And it seems like now, probably, I mean, we don't know, we'll wait and see what they say, but it seems like we're now going back to this sort of vague the sector sort of moving at its own pace which you could argue is is the right thing i don't know um but it but it's interesting isn't it because as you say a lot of energy's gone into it and then we're sort of as we were back in march right yeah absolutely i think another a bit that's kind of really um interesting was i think although some people think the 2030 target was like really ambitious and unachievable it definitely had an impact on the sector like it got people thinking we saw that in various different polls um and i think it it did kind of trigger movement and for schools that are not academies to think about whether they would want to join a trust and what type of trust for single academy, for single academy trust as well. Because that's the other kind of big landscape change, potentially. It was a real signal that the government doesn't want single academy trusts. And there are lots of successful ones, but they're not part of the government's long-term vision. So what are they going to do? Um, and then the other bit was that they, the DfE, I think, almost having to admit that they wouldn't be able to get to this goal without council support. So creating this role for two two prong role for councils um, in in the multi academy trust world one they can establish their own trusts and two we're going to give councils powers to be able to academize wholesale numbers of trusts in their area uh, but that needed legislation and there's no suggestion I don't think that, that that's been taken forward so there's there's big uncertainty around the um, uh, the levers that the the government are going to use on academization going forward I think. So at the end of it all, as you know, is it is it the case that with less than two years to go before an election, you know, um, the ministers at the top have said, look, this was important to the sector, but actually what's important to the general uh, electorate out there, kind of what's going to land in terms of policies uh, and kind of priorities within education, is this something we should be putting our energy into as, as we build up to that point? And it feels like that's that's kind of what's shaping the conversation now. Yeah, exactly that. I think, as you say, um, a general election is, you know, two years away, potentially. Um, and this is a government that's kind of come through the crisis that we just talked about. And as you say, they're, they're, they're going to prioritise legislation that's going to be politically beneficial for them. And this, the academy stuff was a very kind of um, bureaucratic process, really. It was, I think, for people very engaged in the sector, they thought it was necessary but one of the things that struck me the other day was there was some uh, report out um, from Public First, basically gauging what parents care about in education. And it made it quite clear that academies and school structures is just something that doesn't resonate with them. 
what I'm seeing more and more at conferences, um, and I think you might be seeing this as well, John, is is people as well asking the Labour Party, because a lot of people now yeah. think the Labour Party will be in power in the next two years. You said there's going to be a general election, obviously, Mary Lou. What, what's their policy on, on multi-economy trusts and what will they do? And it feels at the moment they're keeping their cards quite close to their chest, saying it wouldn't be a priority. And I think that's a charge that people level against Keir Starmer's sort of leadership that they they often don't say what they think on policy, and I think it it will be quite interesting to watch what they what they say on this over the next two years because although it might not be a priority, they're probably going to have to say something on it before the election. You would assume. Absolutely, and that kind of leads us quite nicely onto our third theme um, of, the, of the year. This, uh, this, and this story is absolutely dominated um, coverage of schools um, outside of the sector as well as as, as within within the sector and, and in Tez, um is is the funding situation and the and uh, coupled with with the cost crisis and uh, uh, rising inflation. Callum, can you can you talk us through? those um, stories that started to emerge in the summer and kind of fears among head school leaders and head teachers about rising costs. Yeah, so I think funding of public services and schools being a, a major part of that is obviously always a, a big story. It's always a always a political issue. I think we actually started to see heads talk about funding quite a bit in the early part of this year, actually. Um, they were talking about how we obviously heard this the term cost of living crisis sort of came into consciousness at the early part of this year, maybe even the back end of last year. Uh, it was mainly about consumers and sort of everyday spending and households, but it affected schools as well. Um, and we started seeing schools talk about how they were facing a perfect storm of different cost pressures. And um, so at the start of the year, if we, if we back, we can think about schools that had their energy bills renewed. They were they were going up. Um, schools are maybe spending more on their catering because food's costing more. We've all seen how high inflation is. We've seen them have quite high, actually, quite high supply staff bills at the time because they were having to cover classes because of because of Omicron and staff being ill. Um, and a lot of heads spoke to us and said, "Look, we're we're on the financial brink, probably, and it's and it and it could well get worse." And it definitely did get worse. Um, and I think it all really came to the head in the summer because um, those energy bills, which people thought were going up at the end of last year, they might subside. They definitely didn't subside. They got worse and worse. Um, and that's partly due to due to Putin's war in Ukraine. It's partly due to other other global factors as well. Um, and it really, really came to head when when schools were told about pay rises that they would have to fund for this year. Um, and those pay rises, no one was arguing that they shouldn't be given. Um, but they were higher than expected and schools had to fund them out of their existing budgets. And then we started to see school leaders say, I've just submitted my budget return for next year and I've got, almost going to have to rip the whole thing up now because my cost on staff, which, as we all know, is school's biggest, biggest bill. That's the that's the main thing they spend on. Uh, and they were just seeing these these really, really high rises, all schools, but particularly in in special schools, because we we heard special school leaders say, they have all these all these um, sort of classroom support staff that they they have to have to keep the school safe to, to sometimes meet legal requirements, um, and they were saying that with these these rising cost pressures, they're just not going to be able to afford that. We even got some special school leaders say that they thought running their school would just become on the verge of unviable. Um, so that was a massive story over the over the summer. The pressure sort of continued into winter as energy bills got got higher and higher. 
and we started to see some government intervention. So they they intervened a little bit on energy bills. They put this um this cap on on what schools would pay. Didn't didn't catch all some schools that 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 renewed earlier in the year weren't covered. Um, but but the majority of schools were helped a little bit, and that support runs till April. Um, and then the major intervention from the government. Um, which which we saw was this autumn statement funding boost, um, which equated to two billion a year, and it comes in from next year. So that is going to help schools a bit. That's a lot of school leaders were happy about that, but I don't think it's alleviated all the pressures, and it's definitely not alleviated some of the pressures that that school leaders are, are facing now, um, and some of them are facing difficult decisions, which which they say are, are going to lead to and have already led to in some cases staff being possibly laid off um, and cuts. And what that means is that, I mean, school business managers, that's that's their job, right, to, to balance the books. And that's what they'll do. But it it means that the quality of education suffers. And we talked earlier in this podcast about about catching up from the from the pandemic. That's going to be made a lot harder if they don't have enough money to do that, basically. And that brings us neatly back round to where we started the podcast, talking about uh, catch up and how that's uh, affected the sector this year. So it just leaves me to say thanks very much to Callum Mason. Thank you very much. And thanks to John Roberts for joining us for the uh, news review of the year. And now I'm joined by Dan Worth, who's analysis and international editor, and Helen Amas, who's commissioning editor at TEDS. And they're here to talk us through a couple of really interesting articles we've had on the site this week. First one looks at whether we've uh, whether we have enough staff in the system to move to a fully multi academy trust led school system, and the second one is uh, an exclusive article from Robin Walker, who's a former education minister and is currently the new chair of the Education Select Committee. So I'll just hand over to Dan and Helen to talk us through those. Hi, and welcome to the analysis section of the podcast. And I'm delighted this week to be joined by the first time with Helen Amas. Uh, Welcome, Helen. And um, you're going to talk with us about a couple of pieces. Nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me. So the first piece that we're going to talk about is one that's been written by Zofia Niemtis, and it's looking into um, whether plans for fully multi-academy trust system, having a fully, a fully um, you know, map-based system, mm. can never be truly achieved uh, unless we make sure that we have the staff uh, with the necessary skills to take on the roles that those um, trusts require. Um, I don't know if you want to just tell us a little bit more about that. Dan. Yeah, well, that's that's the that's the perfect summary, really, because obviously there's been so much talk over the last year, especially about you know the government wanting to move to a fully multi-academy trust system and their belief that's the best model for schools. We have the schools bill. We have plans for this to happen by 2030. That just very recently has also somewhat um, run into a lot of barriers, partly because of all the changes in government and so forth. However, the point remains, if you're going to have any form of movement towards more multi-academy trusts, you're going to need people to run them That's CEOs, but it's also chief operating officers, it's head of HR, it's estates people, jobs that either traditionally were in the local authority set up. And so did that work for schools or but now are sort of moving within into the school domain? Oftentimes, those people doing those jobs are either uh, people who've just worked their way up the ladder. And they sort of ended up in these CEO roles, um, having previously been a classroom teacher, you know, 20 years before. You are seeing more people move into the sector from other sectors, you know, who have past experience in sort of local government and things like that, who then enter the education sector and bring their skills there. But the real question is, do we have enough of both of those 
funnels you know can we get enough ups can we upskill enough existing people in education to become the ceo of a trust which really is not it's not head teacher it's not a big head teacher role it's very different mm-hmm. do we have you know do people with hr credentials in schools exist to then move up to trust level and so forth and are we are we able to entice enough people from outside the sector so Zofia went off, talked to a lot of people, spoke to Stephen Morales at the Institute for School Business Leaders, to Sam Friedman, to existing CEOs, to get their thoughts on this. And obviously, I won't go through all their various views on it, but mm. there is a consensus that, no, it is not straightforward. You know, we, we cannot just rest on our laurels and assume, oh, yes, if, if we move to a fully academy, full academy system, or even, let's say, 70%, you know, 75%, that we will just organically have all these people to do these quite difficult, complicated jobs. And the final point on that, which is why I think it's so important, is it's all very well and good, isn't it, to talk about a trust system and say that's the best model for delivery. And maybe mm-hmm. it is. But if the people running those trusts are not suited to be qualified, skilled, and, and I don't mean that from a criticism, I mean, like, for no, no fault of their own. You know, we have someone in the piece who's stepping up to a CEO of a small mat who kind of basically says, have I been prepared for this type of role? No, you know, mm-hmm. but has the kind of confidence that they will get through it. But is that the right model on a sector wide basis? that people kind of just trust they will get better at it? Um, mm. Probably not. So it's a very interesting piece. It's really worth checking out because I think it's something that's not really been talked about a lot um, and so mm. did a great job piecing it all together. Mm. Well, I think it's it's really topical as well at the moment, isn't it, with the kind of, um, you know, the recruitment and re- retention issues mm. you're having more generally in teaching. And, you know, you've got lots of, of head teachers um, who are either... Um, you know, feeling that they need to, to leave the profession or are considering leaving the profession. And even though that, uh, you know, CEO, Matt role is very different to a head teacher, you know, if you don't even have the people who could potentially step up within the sector, then that's that's a huge issue, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think actually it's a point raised by James Bowen from the NAHT, who earlier this year ran a survey on exactly that point about heads, will they stay in the sector? And so many were saying they intend to leave. And, and you're absolutely right that if anyone is going to kind of move up the ranks immediately, at least, it's going to be people in a senior role already. If they're not enticed by what they do currently and they're thinking of leaving, does the mm. thought of taking even more responsibility, more budgets, more schools appeal to them? Well, some it may. They may see it as a step away from the sort of bits they don't like now, mm-hmm. more of the management level. Let's be fair there. But obviously, for some, it's not going to be appealing or they're going to think, my God, that sounds really hard work. And, and I'm not skilled in that. You know, that's not why I said I want to be a head teacher. I want to be in my school day and day. I don't want to be sort of in the centre, going to different schools or rarely going to schools. You know what I mean? So you, mm. you're, you're, it's a very important point. And when you put all these things together, it shows that actually making sure we have the training routes. And, and to be fair, we should mention the government do acknowledge in their piece that there are routes they're developing, you know, MPQs and this kind of thing. And there's a, there's an advisory board they put together, which Leora Crudders is a member of, and she gives a comment about why she thinks that can help. So again, you can hear the people I've mentioned here, lots of big top level. So Steve Lancashire is quoted in it. So we've really got some good top level people here. Uh, so David Carter, there's another one. You know, so anyone <laughs> anyone who's interested in this, in, in how does the MAT system evolve from here, whether that's with a plan from the government for a full system, whether the Labour government comes in with a different plan, although we understand really from what, what we know from Labour that they don't have any qualms of trusts overall and probably wouldn't seek to to stop the movement in that direction so mm. you put all that together it's an important point the people to run it are fundamental so do we have enough of them possibly not how are we going to find them yeah definitely yeah well it sounds it sounds like a really interesting piece so so definitely do um check that out if you if you have time um 
the second piece that we want to talk about today is um, a piece that's been written by um, Robin Walker. So he's the new chair of the uh, Education Select Committee. Um, and in his piece, he's explaining why he's used this new role to launch an inquiry into early years provision. Kind of focus on early years is something that we're, we're seeing a, a, a lot of at the moment. You know, Ofsted obviously have been kind of focusing on it and there's lots of it is a big kind of push to, to focus on those early years. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, did you want to just explain a bit more about well, what Well, again, yes, as you say, early years are so important and it's part of the sector that um, a lot of people believe is often overlooked at a government level and it's sort of seen as as just the bit before school. Um, but so that's why I think it's very interesting that Robin Walker has chosen his new, you know, his tenure as chair of the Education Select Committee to set out this inquiry on early years. And it's from and, and you know fantastic to have him writing and explaining his thinking why he wants to do that. And and the piece really delves into a lot of different aspects. It's not like there's one thing here. I mean, affordability is a big ele element of it. You know, why is it so expensive? Is it is it too expensive? You know, I'll, by the fact it's so expensive, is that causing other issues? You know, if people can't go back to work, and obviously that has an economic impact, which is very pertinent right now. Um, he actually acknowledges that a, a UNICEF report of, on 41 countries on the affordability of childcare ranked the UK as 35th. And he says that, he says embarrassingly, perhaps, UK was placed 35th. So that's quite an acknowledgement in a way. Um, but he also talks about things like, you know, is, is the curriculum, you might say, correct at that level? You know, is our children being sort of, do they get the right level of preschool education? He talks about SEND, is the system well set up for children with special educational needs or disabilities talks about recruitment and retention so it's really a sort of nuts a, a root and branch review um or reviews their own word it's inquiry um but that's what you're going to see they're going to be talking to a lot of different people about this putting things together and i think the fact that he's coming with that focus from day one is, is a clear message that that i think a lot of people will be quite pleased to hear but i suppose that then what does it lead to in terms of fundamental change because we know obviously an election is due in the not too distant future. There's a lot of people saying, you know, a lot of the polls show Labour's way ahead at the moment. What happens then? Or does this just set up Labour to have to come in and kind of do something similar? Because this is quite a sort of, mm. if, you know, if Robin Walker and his party then use this as a, to say, right, this is what we're going to do to improve early years. And people go, actually, yes, I want more affordable childcare. Mm. I want, you know, we want more more sort of access to it for our, for our children might have put pressure on Labour to do something similar so hopefully it's almost like a pot they both have to go and do better in this arena yeah no I mean it feels like an obvious thing to focus on for you know if, if Labour do come in next it, it seems like that would be a really clear um focus for mm. education given especially everything that we know about how important those first years are in terms of developing and in, in terms of um you know laying the foundations for everything that then comes afterwards and, mm. and I think that's perhaps something that we haven't known so much about in the past and that's why it's been kind of sidelined but the more we learn about sort of how the brain develops and you know how executive function plays a role and that type of thing mm. um, it, it just shows how important those sort of you know naught to five um years are yeah yeah well obviously you're you know on our as our teaching and learning desk lead you know you you know all about that fundamentally and, and it's so true isn't it i think i saw a stat once that you know at 22 months some a child's mm -hmm. sort of educational path is is somewhat set based based on their mm -hmm. early years education and mm -hmm. you know the, the word foundation again like foundations of a house you you, every, you have to start correctly to to build up and, and if we're not getting that right then all these other later things we look at you know disadvantage gaps and so forth and mm -hmm. um you know gcse outcomes and a level outcomes it's like well 
oh, why do we go back down the river, so as they say, and, and fix that rather than trying mm. to fix the problem when it's already 15 years down the line? So it's, mm. it's a big, complicated area. You know, again, rec- recruitment and retention of earlier staff. That's another pressing issue that he mentions they're going to look into. So, so again, you know, a, a quite a sort of quietly positive stance uh, um, and sort of, you know, setting out an agenda by Robert Morker in this piece. Great to have him write for us. He'll be writing for us more often as well, which is, which is again, is, is really nice to have with that kind of engagement with these you know, people like that. So, yeah, really worth having a read of that. And, and we'll obviously, Ontes, be keeping an eye on what comes from that and, and what, what it leads to. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it sounds like um, it's it's really um, worth reading, you know, whatever stage of, of, of teaching you are working in, because definitely, obviously, yeah. like we say, it underpins everything. So. Absolutely. Great. Cool. Well, thank you, Helen, for joining us. And I hope everyone has enjoyed the podcast and have a great Christmas as well, everyone. So thanks very much to Dan and Helen. To find more information on those articles, you can go to tes.com forward slash magazine. And it just leaves me to say thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening throughout the year. Hope you have a very Merry Christmas and we'll be back in the new year for more Tez News podcasts. Thank you.